Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com Fangoria magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100 page quarterly edition each issue includes set visits deep dives new discoveries and minimal ads all printed on collectible grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. I'm Mick Garrison. Welcome once again to Postmortem AMA, where you have a chance to ask me anything. And with us is our producer, Joe Russo. I will be answering the questions that he will ask on your behalf. And you can ask your questions through Joe Russo tweets on Twitter or PostmortemMG on Twitter or at Instagram at PostmortemGram. Yeah. So, Joe, what do we got in store today? We've got, we've got some good questions today. Um, so it's about we'll time. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've, we've, all, we've always got good questions. We have, ah, we have very good fans. The uh, best. The best. Uh, so I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. I'm just going to take a stab. Mus Hussein asks... Uh, with the misfire at the box office of the Hellboy reboot, do you think film studios will be less willing to greenlight horror film reboots in the future? I don't really think of Hellboy as a horror film. No, I didn't either. I thought of it more as a comic a book A comic movie. book superhero yes. with horror elements. But, yeah. you know, a lot of reboots fail and a lot of them are hugely successful. Right. Um, so uh, you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pet Cemetery, you know, these are really successful movies, so it's hard to say that there's a string of failed reboots. I wouldn't mind in the slightest if they didn't make them anymore, but sure. <laughs> it's so much easier to sell a familiar title right. than it is to come up with something new. Right. Uh, I would much rather see something new. I think the ones that should be rebooted are the ones that were a good idea that didn't quite work. Or maybe the special effects weren't quite there then. Yeah, you or know? something. But, yeah. but Give it a uh, reason to reboot it. A reason to reboot. So for me, franchises and reboots aren't nearly as interesting as as original genre stuff. Um, so, I, you know, the, the question itself... Um, 
I would agree with you. I don't think that uh, the fate of horror reboots hinges on Hellboy specifically, (laughs) whether it had been a success or not. Right. Um, And uh, I wish it had been more successful because of our friend Neil Marshall. I know, friend of the show. Such a great filmmaker. Absolutely. Who did not have a great experience on that film. No, maybe someday we'll get him back on and we can pick his brain a little bit. That's uh, right. But uh, all right. Well, so our next question then, uh, Andre J writes... Why do you think European horror movies are remade for U.S. audiences besides the financial aspect? Movies like Wreck and Martyrs. Uh, and are there any European movies that you've seen, European horror movies that you've seen that you would like to remake? Um, it's a two-parter. <laughs> yeah, I think they get remade because they're good ideas that nobody in the States knows about. Right. You know, here are are plots that may not have been considered or thought of or made as movies previously in the States, but could be made. Americans are are very chauvinistic about their language. They're very loath to watch movies with subtitles, particularly horror movies with subtitles. Mm -hmm. Um, But things like Martyrs and and the like... um, they get made because of the possibility, especially if they're successful in other countries or on the horror festival circuit. Right. As far as remake ones, uh, there's a movie I just saw on Hulu that is a Scandinavian film oh. called The Guilty. Okay. And it's amazing. It all takes place in a police station in one room. Huh. Uh, I hear that there are already remake plans for it. I was I'm looking sure. into it. Yeah. But um, it's a movie that I highly recommend. And I just saw it a week or so ago. And I never think, wow, I'd love to remake this. Sure, sure. But this is one that made me say, wow, I'd love to remake yeah. this. But it looks like that's not in the cards. Yeah. I, I mean, to, you know, my, my opinion is it's no different than adapting a book or a comic book or some other piece of intellectual property. Right. right? They're just, they're taking something that they know is a good idea and they know worked in one market and they're trying to expand it into another. And like you said, as soon as Americans see subtitles, suddenly it becomes a niche art house movie. Exactly. And uh, I, actually, I actually think that the, the horror genre fans are actually the ones who are probably more likely to watch a horror film from another country. They would be, but they have shown they're not willing to go out to the theaters to right. do Right. They'll wait till they They'll see watch it on, it on Shutter, Netflix Hulu, or Shutter. Or, yeah. yeah. Shutter is a great place. They seem to be even less um, mindful yeah. of movies with subtitles. I think, I think you know, like uh, our, our friend uh, Carly Fajot with Revenge did it really smart where it is a French movie, but they spoke in English. Almost so entirely it, in so English. So it could play yeah. very well in the States. And I think, I think she really opened up her audience because of that. Yeah, I uh, think that's a great movie that should not be remade. No, I, I, and I don't yeah. think it will. I don't think it needs yeah, to be. Yeah, it is mostly in English, yeah. uh, even though it's perceived as a French film. But yeah. there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And I would much rather people see the originals and in their original language. Yeah, I agree. Well, speaking of friends of the podcast that keep coming up in answers, <laughs> uh, our friends uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods from A Quiet Place <laughs> Uh, they asked a question, I guess, kind of a, of both of us. Uh, they wanted to know that before I left for New Mexico uh, about six weeks ago, if we had any conversations where you gave me advice about my directorial debut. Which we did what, indeed we have, did that, have conversation. that conversation. We did have that conversation. And, I mean, it happened so quickly because, I mean, 
there was maybe a week between getting greenlit and going out to New Mexico. Right. And I, you were literally the only person I could, like, I, I, I said, Mick, I have to meet with you. And, <laughs> Can we meet at Aroma? Yep, your, your spot. Yeah. And, and so with that, that conversation did take place. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you remember any of the things we talked about. Yeah, I think there were a lot of things that <laughs> we, we talked discussed, a lot. You for, know, we talked one, for about two or three hours. Yeah, one uh, of the main things was how important it is to make your actors feel comfortable yes. and secure, yes. and that you're their safety net and you're there to encourage them, and how people respond best to a director who's there to encourage. If you're a yeller and screamer, they get used to that, and then they want to do the least amount of work possible to Absolutely. get by. Uh, but well, and it was very cool because about halfway through the shoot, I got a text from one of my leads saying pretty much just that, and I sent it to you, and I said, "Look, yeah. I took your advice, and it's working." <laughs> well, that's good to know because it could have really fallen on its own. <laughs> but you know, really, the the main the main advice I would give to a new filmmaker, like we talked about, and and if there's other stuff you want to add to it sure. that we discussed is that it's hard to make a movie and the more pleasant and pleasurable you can make it for all involved, the better experience it's going to be and the better movie it's going to be. Yeah. Everybody's there to do their job and hopefully all of them do it better than you would do it in their position and encouraging them to find, encourage, and allow the best people to do their best work is, I think, one of the primary roles of the director. So yeah. I don't know what else we discussed. No, and, and you know, and the nice thing was even before we, we sat down and really reiterated that, I got to watch you and, and, and the other guys do that on Nightmare Cinema and, and watch yeah. watch you practice what, what you preached. And, <laughs> and I really took that to heart. And, I mean, gosh, like a lot of the cast and crew said that that was one of the most fun sets they were on. And it was, you know, it was always it was always a good time, even when we were kind of riding crazy waves because we had a very short schedule and a very low budget. But uh, um, I think the other thing that you said was, you know, you kind of we, we talked about the advice that Spielberg had given you. Uh, right. which I think is a great piece of advice. Yeah, I'll let you say because I'll, I'll butcher it. But uh, Well, what he said to me when I was doing my first directing job on Amazing Stories, he said, do things you'd be afraid of being fired for because I promise you I'm not going to fire you. Yeah, yeah. And that really allowed me to think bigger, yep. to, to not worry about... Uh, often... When you're new at something, you think everybody else knows better than you. Right. But the reason you're there as a director is because your vision is being fulfilled. Yeah. And all of these people can help fulfill it. And you want to draw on the knowledge of people who have more experience than you do. But you also need to have the strength to go, you know, this is a good idea that I think is going to work really well, even if it's not how you would have done it. Because often people who are experienced will do it the way they've done it or the easiest way. Yeah. And I had, you know, and luckily I was that that advice was applicable here because right before I left, I had a very similar conversation with my producers where they said, you know, don't don't go watch comps of, of this, these styles of movies. Go go make your own movie, make it your own, make it your own style. And so like the the, the permission that they gave plus that advice, I think, led to us, you know, trying out some a couple shots here and there within reason because we were on a limited time and budget uh but and that was the other thing you said was you know 
get the coverage, focus on getting the story, but every now and then try to, you know, listen to your DP, Andrew Russo, who's great. And you've worked with him before too. And listen to his ideas and listen to the other ideas around you. And I think that was something that I really, you know, I'd, I'd been hearing, you know, from back from our first postmortem, you and Rob Zombie talked about how like you do the shot list, but then when you get there, you kind of throw it out. Right. And just because of, production you know issues and because of schedule and time and whatnot you know a lot of the the shot list that Andrew and I created we had to pare down quite a bit yeah and uh and and so what I started to do was to just watch the actors and see what they were doing and then frame the shots react in reaction to that and that's the most um, important thing the performances and the stories matter yep. more than jerking off with a camera absolutely you know absolutely <laughs> absolutely so so i think just yeah those those are probably the big things that through our conversations and through postmortem and through nightmare cinema i took and i tried to apply and it seemed to have worked uh, my editor seems very happy so <laughs> well we'll see the movie and yeah i know, know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm i'm a feature filmmaker we'll find out if i'm a good one uh, <laughs> i have all confidence in you oh, young man you, <laughs> uh so one last uh you know kind of i guess bigger question is people have been asking a lot about your kind of old jobs that you've done throughout the years and and I thought maybe let's go back to the first one. Uh, you know, it's it's just after May, and and I think when you think summer, you think Star Wars. Uh, right. So you worked in the Star Wars offices I back did. at the beginning. Uh, yeah, I my job before that was at Tower Records in Westwood as the night manager. Wow. And singing in a band, which I still was doing when I got hired at Star Wars. Yeah. But a friend of mine, uh, a journalist told me that they were looking for someone. I was dying to work in the film world. I was writing screenplays, but didn't know what to do with them. And this friend told me they were looking for somebody, didn't say for what job, at the Star Wars Corporation, right after the movie had opened. Okay, so the movie had come out. The movie had just come out. Okay, got it. And was on the verge of, well, it It was... It was was blowing up. it, It blew up. Right. And I went and met with Charlie Lippincott, who was the first person to to specialize in publicity, particularly aimed at the genre audience. He went to science fiction conventions. He he premiered a, a slideshow at Comic-Con in wow. San Diego before wow. any other movie had ever done that. So I found out my job. Uh, I went in and applied, and it was to be a receptionist for $150 a week. And my job was primarily to pick up the phone and say, Star Wars, may I help you? And then transfer calls. Um, if now, had you, you seen, you'd seen the movie at this point? I saw the movie yeah. and just blew my mind. Were you like ex- so you else. were excited to be in this environment, Oh, I hugely imagine. excited, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was on that opening day at the Chinese Theater in right. Hollywood on right. Hollywood Boulevard. Wow. And uh, a part of that big audience. Yeah. And um, so... They knew that I was capable of more than doing just answering the phone, so um, I became R2-D2's handler. Right. I, uh, I operated the remote control robot on like a Kenner commercial on Disney, uh, Mickey Mouse's 50th birthday. Wow. Uh, and then, ultimately, 
uh, I operated R2-D2 on the Oscars yeah, in Which is such a cool photo. That, that so. Every time that photo comes up, it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah, but you were also there when they did the Christmas special, right? I was. I operated R2 for the Christmas you, special. You, you, uh, you were on the set for that. I was on the set. Yeah. It was, it's kind of legendary in how bad it is. And on how atrocious <laughs> it is. Yeah, well, it, uh, we only worked a couple of days with R2, I think. Right. But, um, yeah. When you saw it, did you look around and say, like, what is this? Or, I mean, like, did... Well, we were mostly around the Wookiee tree. The, okay, right. <laughs> the Wookiee family right. tree For there. life day. Uh, uh, and uh, so I wasn't there for Don Knotts and B. Arthur and you know, <laughs> the, the people who were in it. But it did seem incredibly lame. Right, <laughs> even right. Even at the time. Well, I mean, it must have, like, coming off of the, the wild success of the movie, been yeah. kind of like... What are we? What are we doing? Well, do? it had been uh, adopted by everyone who could get their hands on it. You right. Know, CBS knew they could make money on a Star Wars Christmas special, and George Lucas didn't own it. Twentieth Century Fox did, or at least right. enough at the time to where that oh, let's make money with CBS. Doing right, because he special. he had rights for the sequels, not necessarily for the first. Right, movie. for everything and the merchandising and right. all that. He right. maintained all the rights yes. to the merchandising. Yeah, the the, the greatest was, deal ever yeah. made in the history of Hollywood. Yeah, which uh, was partly constructed by the guy who became my attorney, Andy Rigrod. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but Charlie Lippincott was a big part of that. So, yeah, it was incredibly exciting to be around at that time. My first job working on Star Wars. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, I guess on that note, we'll wrap up this week's right. AMA. Another postmortem AMA. Again, any questions that you might have for me, send them to Joe at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, uh, postmortem MG on Twitter. Uh, postmortem Graham on Instagram, and I look forward to seeing and answering your questions. Thanks, Mick. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.